0: Well, I'm glad to see so many faces in the house of God today who are excited to be in the presence of God. Amen? Amen. I'm glad to see people who came to encounter the Lord. Amen? Amen? I'm glad to see people who are here to meet with Him and be forever changed by His goodness. God is good all the time. Today, I want us to to take a look at at a scripture here in the book of Matthew. So find your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. Pretty easy to get to. Last week, we were celebrating Easter. We gathered last week to sing, to pray, to worship. Not the Easter bunny, hello. But we gathered to celebrate the most climactic tipping point in all of human history. For on Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He rose from the tomb. Somebody say amen. On Easter Sunday, Jesus showed himself victorious. He was victorious over death, hell, and the grave, just as he forewarned his disciples. We gather to celebrate the day that Jesus confirmed the truth And he validated every single word that he had ever claimed. For John 2, 19 through 22, says this in the message translation or paraphrase. Jesus answered, tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll put it back together. And they were indignant, speaking of the religious leaders. It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days. But Jesus was talking about his body as the temple. Later on, after he raised himself from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said. And they then put two and two together and believed both what, he, what was written in the scriptures and what Jesus had told them. On Easter, Jesus validated everything. If Jesus is now risen, then the reason he offered for his coming, the insights that he taught of, the fa- of Father God, the demands that he extended to all who would hear him, every ear that can hear, let him hear, every one of these claims, all of it, truly, everything, takes on a whole new weight. All of it has to take on a new gravity. If Jesus is risen from the grave, then we have to weigh the gravity of every word that he has said. Why? Because you can indulge someone with an opinion, but you must respond to somebody with truth. You can indulge someone's opinion and well wishes and, and what they've like, you know, I heard it said and I think that this might be the case. You can indulge all these ideas and everything they might espouse to you, but you have to respond to truth. You might indulge gravity, but choose not to indulge it and jump off a building, you have to respond to that truth. And so I'm excited to begin a series with you for the next several weeks that we're calling, did he really say that? He really said that? Did he really say that? We're going to look at what Jesus said. We're going to look at some of the most countercultural, revolutionary, upside-down things that Jesus has said. We're going to look at these things that he has spoken, some of the most famous of his sayings, because I want us to understand that these are famous, yet these are some of the least obeyed sayings of Christ. And yet, if he is a person who validated everything that he said, everything that he claimed to be, then you know what? We need to really walk carefully and take seriously what he has said. And I want to get into these sayings because I believe that if we were to really respond to them, if we really were to grapple with them and wrestle them into our hearts and our lives and let them permeate our being, that they would revolutionize our lives. Hello. That they would revolutionize our lives. See, that's why Jesus came. He didn't come so that you could feel good, say, oh, that was nice. I'll put that up on my Twitter. I'll post it on Instagram and social media, and I'll put up a picture of it so I can see how many likes I can get. No, he came so that he could revolutionize your life. He came so that he could revolutionize your family, so that he could change things within the context of your marriage, so that he could totally shift the fabric and the identity of your community. I believe that if we take these words into account and we factor them into our lives, they will transform the very fabric of our being. It will change our church. It will shift this region. and So, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you've been around the block, then you may recognize these as what's called the Beatitudes. These sayings of Jesus Christ are called the Beatitudes. And some of you who have no idea what that means, you're, you're not part of the church world, you're not around the block, you might not know what that means, but you know what, some of us, even in the church, we've been here, we've heard that word, but we have no idea what it means. Let me, let me clear that up real quick as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes comes from the word in Latin that means happy or blessed. Beatitudes flows out of the Latin. And so because you'll find Jesus saying blessed are, happy are, depending on your translation, we call it the Beatitudes. Not really incredible. Not really mind-blowing. Okay, a fancy word for a whole bunch of sayings that's going to start with the word blessed or happy. And let me just say, spoiler alert, before we even jump into this message, that how Jesus defines blessedness and happiness doesn't quite often connect and, 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 and sync up with what the world declares happiness to be. Spoiler alert, you've been warned. His way of defining happiness doesn't always match up to culture. As Paul put it, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, 1 Corinthians 3.19 short-sighted and unwise we call men happy when all the circumstances of their lives seem to be going well we call men happy when we we can look at them and say that oh their lives are cheerful good-natured they're surrounded by family and friends who love them things are all good we don't always call people blessed though because we have this connotation and this innate thought that blessedness deals with something a little bit deeper It deals with something uh, that implies some heavenly affections, a deeper, holier joy. Blessedness is an inward uh, abiding that, you know what, outward prosperity or adversity cannot impact. It's much like the depths of the ocean. If you think about the ocean, think of the tumultuous waters upon the surface. At sometimes those waters can be tossed to and fro by all the, the the restless winds, and it's majorly dynamic and and up and down and swells and all sorts of things. But then at the same time there can be other moments where you know in a different part of the ocean it's perfectly still, at rest, peace. Yet, regardless of what's happening on the surface, when you look underneath, if you go down deep into the oceans, there, completely unaltered by what's happening on the surface, there is this constant peace, silence, that's eternally that way. This is the territory that we're entering, the blessed territory that goes beyond what's on the surface level, beyond what we define things to be. Are you in Matthew chapter 5? Amen. Let's look at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, I thank you for your word, and I ask you, Lord, that in these next couple of weeks, That, Father, you would truly allow the simplicity and the beauty that are found within these words to really gravitate, uh, grip, and, and, and wrestle down our hearts, Father, that your Holy Spirit would minister into our hearts and cause change in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Right out of the gate... The very first thing that Jesus says when he's going to talk about this idea of blessedness, this idea of happiness, let me tell you what happiness is. Let me tell you what blessing is. The very first thing that he brings to everyone's attention, he speaks out as crowds are before him. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who are, if you look at poor, other synonyms, words for it. Blessed are those who are bankrupt, blessed are those who are destitute, blessed are those who are empty, blessed are those who are broke, blessed are those who are empty-handed, blessed are those who are needy and impoverished. Now, before we even go any further, how many of you guys are saying, ooh, sounds awesome, pastor, pick me, pick me, God, right here, I'm right here, choose me. I want this. Call me a blessed person. Sign me up for this. I don't see a lot of people standing up and giving God a praise. Hallelujah. Well, pastor, nobody is reacting right now. No eager folks over here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this word mean? We're going to be very basic and very simple, all right, in in this series. What is Jesus saying? He shows up on the scene. This man who has validated his words who has promised and said some incredible things. He's declared he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's talked about being the gate. He's talked about being the good shepherd, that he is the one that brings life and life eternal, that you can't go to the Father if you don't go to him. He said all of these things. He's claimed things about his life, about his future, about our future. He's declared things about eternity. He has declared things about our identity. He's spoken all of these things, and now he's showing up on the scene saying, here, here. As he's teaching the crowds, he looks at his disciples and he's speaking to them. And around them is a group of other people, the crowds, the multitudes. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, it goes all the way to chapter 7. This is all one big, long sermon that would have taken days to be preached. Jesus is speaking and he says, blessed are you who are poor. What does this mean? Well, sometimes in the church world, we look at this and we start, you know, ascribing and defining and interpreting it in in, in the wrong ways. So from the get-go, I want to just explore what does this not mean? When Jesus says to those who are standing before him, the crowds of people who are there, he's speaking to his disciples. And he's always wanting the disciples to take what he has said and incorporate it into their lives. He is speaking to them, but he's allowing the crowds to hear He's allowing those within earshot to be blessed and to be impacted and to be challenged. He says, blessed are the poor. What is he saying? Well, he's not saying that blessed is actual poverty. How many of you have met Christians who have, you know, you know uh, come up against this idea and you've been around church folk enough time that you've kind of gotten this sense that they're kind of promoting this, you know, woe is me. Uh, you need to, to be completely, you know destitute in order to be a person that God listens to, a person that might be blessed. How many have heard it preached that Jesus was a poor man? How many have heard that the disciples were poor people, that they were, you know what, virtuous because they had not what they needed, that these guys were, you know, so poor and that they were so needy and impoverished anybody ever hear or get that sense when you meet other christians some people say yeah, i'm suffering for jesus over here anybody ever hear that ever come across that attitude well let me just say from the get-go what this is not saying what this is not sanctioning is poverty as a condition neither is jesus saying hey blessed are the poor i'm not trying to idealize and and, and elevate and exalt poverty as a value Because poverty never glorifies those that it touches. Poverty never glorifies, never edifies those who suffer its misery. Don't raise your hands, but you know what? Sometimes we, we say these cliche things and inadvertently, maybe these simplistic cliches, we, we kind of latch onto and we promote it without even understanding what we're saying. Sometimes we look around and we see people who are in such needy situations, impoverished, poor, and all these other stuff. And we say things like, you know what? Oh, isn't that beautiful? The uncluttered life of the poor. Isn't it beautiful? The uncluttered life of the poor. Isn't it interesting? Oh, how happy must the poor be because they get to experience the simple joys? You know, maybe you go on a mission trip and you, and you come back and you're just on fire for Jesus. Why? Because you went to an to a impoverished third world country or worse and you met people there that were filled with vibrant joy and they weren't hung up on all of the bells and whistles of life like you see back home here. And you say, oh, how, how beautiful it is, the simple life of the poor, how they get to experience the simple joys of life. These types of cliches just point to our utter ignorance. The ignorance of people who do not know personally, who probably never met a poor person, and never gone through the misery of what it means to go through poverty. Because if you just take one look around, you'll notice that, you know, the plight of the poor is something that you do not want. The plight of the poor is not something that you want to edify and say, oh, That's beautiful. God himself, when he looked down and he looked at the misery of his people, Exodus chapter 3 verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And what does God do? He intends to change that. Why? Because he doesn't want his people to live there. If God wanted to edify poverty as this incredible ideal, then why would he go out of his way? To send Moses to release his children out of the misery of poverty under enslavement to the Egyptians. There's nothing beautiful about being powerless to feed your family. There's nothing beautiful about sleeping exposed to the elements. There's nothing beautiful about not being able to get the medicine that you need. There is nothing beautiful about living off the mercy of another. There's nothing beautiful about living under the stigma and the judgment of society. There's nothing beautiful about that church. So, this idea that, you know, a present actual poverty is, is you know, praised because one day there will be a, a beautiful heavenly eternal reward, uh, that's just absurd. It flies in the face of what Jesus is saying. But, Pastor, what about when, when I read in Matthew's gospel when the scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, um, you know, All of these things that he starts uh, praising and edifying, he wants to follow Jesus, and he's excited to to, to connect with the momentum that's happening in his ministry, and then Jesus says to him, hey, sir, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isn't that, pastor, an endorsement of Jesus being a poor person? Isn't that an endorsement of Jesus, uh, you know, edifying and elevating this idea of poverty? What about when he told his disciples and as he sent them out two by two to go preach the gospel and proclaim the good news to the poor and heal the sick and cast out demons and he said to them, hey, you guys don't take, you know, extra clothes. And by the way, uh, don't take a money purse, a money bag with you. Just go. Is it, aren't these, you know, examples in Jesus Christ and the way he commanded his people, aren't these, you know, promotion to the idea that God elevates poverty? Like one pastor who I remember years back when he was talking, he used to drive around this car, and he used to be so proud about driving this car that was rust and, 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 and basically like almost to the point of breaking down on the highway. And he's going to church to church and he's preaching and he's doing all that stuff and he's like thinking that he's so high and mighty because he is suffering for Jesus. In the middle of a sermon one day, God convicts him and says, You know what? You're an embarrassment. You're an embarrassment. I'm not trying to elevate poverty for the sake of poverty. You look at it, it is a problem. Maybe, church, it could be that some people look at these lifestyles and look at these things, you know, uh, as proof text that Jesus had no place to lay his head. Well, let me just tell you this. Read the rest of Matthew, and you're going to find nowhere in the scriptures where Matthew declares that Jesus or his disciples were in any which way in their ministry or life lacking of the resources that they needed. If you, In fact, you look at when Jesus tells the disciples, go out two by two, he says this, hey, don't take a money purse with you, but this is what you're going to do. When you show up, okay, Matthew 10, 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So in other words, uh, there will always be a place for you to sleep. There will always be a place where you will be able to gather around and eat a meal. There will always be a place. Find someone who is worthy and there you go and do the work. And if they don't accept you, they're dust off the the dust off your shoulders, off your feet, off your sandals, and keep going. But this idea that Jesus is edifying poverty, it is not true. He had the resources that he needed. Even when it came to the point of Jesus Christ being buried after his death, he didn't just get thrown in a mass grave but he was given a rich man's tomb that had never been used before. Jesus was provided for. He had the resources that he needed. Every time God provided for him and God made a way for him, why? Because he voluntarily chose. There's this, a difference between somebody who voluntarily chooses to elevate the preaching of the gospel and endure some things. Yeah, he didn't have the same house to sleep in every night and the convenience of what that might've been or been able to eat at the same restaurant every single week and every time He left church. No, but Jesus always had what he needed because he was not poor. I got to suffer for Jesus. Uh, All right, you can go ahead and do that, but I'm going to choose to trust in the Lord and promote his gospel and say, God, I know you've provided my every need. And now I'm not going the opposite extreme of saying that we need to be, you know what, so, uh, you know, attuned with this reality that God provides for our needs and takes care of it. So I'm going to go and amass everything and anything that I want, and I'm going to go the other extreme and become a prosperity preacher. Because there is such a thing where Jesus had a balance when the rich young ruler showed up to Jesus and he said, hey, Lord, what must I do to, to, to inherit eternal life? Jesus looked at that rich young ruler and he says, hey, go ahead, sell everything you've got. Give to the poor. Come follow me. The Bible tells us that he walked away distressed. So there is a a balance between I'm not just promoting go out there and be poor and have nothing. I'm promoting this balance where you need to understand that poverty is not God's will. That's why you see in the New Testament when the church was established, so many people were going out there and selling everything they had, selling homes, selling fields, selling all these different things. Barnabas sold a field and he became known as a person that was an encourager and he was giving that field up in order to meet needs within the body. There was a balance and God provided for him and provided for them. See, if you look around, you see poverty in the world. The reason we might say, oh, blessed is the simple life of the poor, maybe we say such things, maybe we allow such ideas within our hearts because, honestly, we're living like the rich young ruler who isn't willing to part with anything in order to see God's plan fulfilled. If poverty exists in the world, it's because God's will is not being fulfilled. I see the plight of my people in Egypt. Therefore, I will send you, Moses, to lead them out. If we find ourselves promoting this value, maybe we're trying to let ourselves off the hook. Poverty should not exist in the kingdom of God. God needs to move upon his people to meet needs, have enough, but meet needs. That's why it's one of the the critical things that Jesus is going to talk about in in the next couple of chapters in Matthew 5 through 7. He's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about this idea that we are supposed to sow and bless and be a resource, that we're supposed to sacrifice and do that type of stuff. Why? Because it keeps us in the place of humility and dependence with God. It keeps us in the place where we're partnering with his kingdom ethic, where we are actually furthering his purposes and bringing about his plan where it eradicates the need in other people's lives it's not actual poverty what else isn't it if you look at what we see in the scriptures what Jesus isn't saying blessed are the poor in spirit because they will inherit the earth he's not saying blessed are those who are spiritually mature I don't mean to burst anyone's bubble here but here's here's my experience when I graduated college the first time um, I said, finally, I'm done. All the essays, all the papers, all the term projects. I'm done reading these boring textbooks written by me professors who never actually gone into the field and they don't even use this book in the class. I'm done. I'm going to not read another book in my life. I know, totally immature of me. It's immature of every high school student who says that after, you know, they throw up their cap and gown. All right. We're, we're tempted to say that even though some of them already are accepted into college and know they're going into college. They're going to have to read. There's a temptation to say, I don't want to read another book. At that time, I was done with all that stuff. I just wanted the payoff, I wanted to receive the benefits of my studies, I wanted to get paid, I wanted to get hired, I wanted to go out there and just do everything that I thought I learned and I amassed in my mind. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the Bible says. If we read the Bible, you'll realize that Jesus is not saying, hey, blessed are you guys who are going to remain immature. Blessed are you guys who are so poor in your spirit that you never cultivate yourself, that you never grow, that you never go beyond what you already know. That you live off of what you learned when your parents taught you the Bible stories. You're still singing, yes, Jesus loves me. And that's the only song you know because you're living off of the past. You're you're just going and quoting John 3.16 because that's the only one you memorize. Or you're going and opening up your Bible to Psalms 91 because that just stands on your desk and on your table and on your shelf. And you go to it when you have trouble. But that's all you know. He is not promoting spiritual immaturity. Ephesians four, eleven through thirteen, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says that we are to mature. We are to progress. We are to grow in our faith. We are to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So some of us, we look at this, Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we've kind of let ourselves off the hook that we, we need to just be kind of like, you know, poor, right? I I need to be like, you know, at a place where I don't know it all. I need to be at a place where I'm not striving so much because... It's all about him, right? That's not what he's saying. We need to be growing, maturing. He's not saying that we need to be self-loathing. You need to be to a place where you're so poor that you look down on yourself so much that you say to yourself, I'm a piece of garbage. You know what, I'm I'm good for nothing. I'm never going to overcome this. I don't matter. You know what, nothing good ever comes to me. And this is me. God, I'm being poor, Lord. I'm putting myself in my place so that you can do the incredible things in my life. And we are taking on the role and the job of the deceiver, the one who's the accuser of the brethren, and we're doing a good job for Satan. That's not what he's saying. I want you to be so poor that you look down on yourself and you think that you have nothing and that you are nothing. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1:27: so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. If you jump down to verse 31, it says that God saw all that he made and it was very good. God calls us good. We are not supposed to be self loathing to the point that we say, God, we can never do this. We're never going to grow. I'm being a very devout person by, by beating myself up. So, what is the proper context? An understanding of ourselves. And what is it that Jesus means when he says, I want you to be poor in spirit? It's not profound, church. It's very simple. This is what he wants us to understand. In the New Testament, There are two words, and and the second word that's used for poor is going to really encapsulate this. What he means is, I want you to be spiritually bankrupt. I want you to be spiritually bankrupt. There is two words. Penes is a word that means working poor, barely scraping by. That's not the word that's used here. But then there is a word that is used right here in this text, and that is the word tokos which means a beggar, having nothing, destitute, absolute poverty. It's the second word that is used in this beatitude. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's wanting us to consider that we need to become spiritually at a place where we realize that we have nothing that we can add or contribute towards us being inheritors of the kingdom we have nothing that we can add or contribute in order for us to approach god we approach him completely empty-handed we show up before god without anything on our hands to say lord here is what i want to exchange with you it's like we show up and we say lord this is all i've got a couple of stinky nasty dirty holy full ripped socks and you know what if i exchange them with you will you give me a dollar or two what does he want with our ripped stinky dirty filthy socks nothing that's why it tells us in the bible that all of our works is like spirit is like filthy rags onto him when we approach God, we have nothing of, 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 of beauty, of, of, of able to be bartered, nothing that we bring to the table to allow him to give us what he is by grace deciding to pour out upon us. We don't have control. We have zero power. We're not at the center of the universe. We are the beggars who come to him saying, Lord, I just want a crumb. There's a story of a Phoenician, a Syrophoenician woman who shows up to Jesus, Jesus' ministry, and when he came on the scene, he first came to his people. He first came to the Jews and he proclaimed the message of the kingdom of God. And this woman who was a Gentile, who was a woman who was not of Jewish heritage, she was an outsider. She shows up and says, Lord, please meet the need of my family. Lord, I need a touch from you. We need you to move upon us. And she insists, he says, I'm sorry, I came to the children of Israel. And she says, Lord, but even the dogs who sit around the table of their masters, they yearn for a crumb, a morsel to fall off. Even they find a morsel. Even they get a crumb here and there once in a while. God, please, I'm a beggar. I've got nothing. I have nothing to offer you. Bring me a morsel. Give me a crumb, Jesus. Church, this is a picture of total dependency. And that's the point. When Jesus came up on the scene, he was saying, in effect, to everybody who's listening, hey, listen up, everybody. You guys all look to every, you want to know who's blessed? This is how you guys consider blessedness. Blessed is the people who have it all together. Blessed are the people who have the houses and the homes and the, and, the, and the cars and the chariots. They're the people who have the money in the bank account. They're the ones who can go on vacations. Blessed are the ones who have prestige. Those are the ones who are being inducted into the Hall of Fame and who are being celebrated and talked about. These are the ones that stand up in the, in the public square and they can preach these incredible messages and they have such in, in, incredible talent. And these are the people that you guys declare to be blessed. But let me tell you who's blessed. Blessed are the ones who show up and say, you know what, I've got nothing. I am nothing, if not by your mercy. See, I have nothing. I don't have anything to lean on. Jesus is showing up and saying, you want to be blessed? Then let go Like the rich young ruler who was depending on his finances and his portfolio to declare his worth and to give him credibility. And that gave him an inroad and an open door into other elites and other people of stature and status. Let go of what you are depending upon in order to consider yourself blessed and to consider yourself worthy of receiving my father's love. Because in reality, you are are a beggar. Church, we need to come to God and say, Lord, I am coming and choosing the way of humility. And this is the very first beatitude. And I think it's important that Jesus established this as the very first beatitude, because if we don't get this one, we're not going to get anything else he says. Everything is going to just go right over our heads, You know what? It's humility that we need. He's calling us to be people who revolutionize the world, who change our fabric of our society, who impact lives, who change things. Let me show you something. How come you're not praying? How come you don't pray as often as you believe you should? How come we don't go and cry out to God and say, Lord, I, I need more of you. God, intervene in my family, in my community. Work out this thing in, this, in the school system and change this in my society. God, there's this incredible thing that's happening in Boston coming up soon. It blows my mind that it's happening. This thing called SatanCon. And there's gonna be a whole bunch of people coming, witches and wizards and all these folks who are gonna come to celebrate Satan and to, and to, to commit orgies and to do all sorts of crazy things. Go look it up. It's coming this month in Boston. And we see that and we say, oh, you know, how come we're not praying against that God would break that event up, uh, that he would save lives, that he would change situations? Uh, 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 because I don't have time, Pastor. I don't have time. Wrong. If you ever seen The Office, there's a guy named Dwight. He says, false. You know why you don't pray? You know why you don't take this Satan con seriously and why you're not you know, crying out for God to move in your family and you're not crying out to God to do something in your life and to change your circumstance? You know why we don't pray? Pride. Pride holds us back. Jesus is talking about, I want you to become so poor. I want you to become so destitute in spirit because you're going to come under this thing called humility. And humility opens doors. Humility is what allows relationships to flourish. See, Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthian church and he knew that they had some problems, he says, I wish to come with you that I may pray and be humbled and mourn with you guys. He's talking to a church that was living in sin. They were living, you know, one guy was sleeping with his father's wife and he was flaunting that like it was, you know, look at me, I got my dad's girl. He was flaunting it. There there was rich people in the church that they were so excited about their richness and their ability and what they had that they were completely overlooking the reality that poverty exists within this society, within this church. And I will do nothing about it because I'm just so excited about what I've got. There was a lot of sin happening in Corinth. And Paul says, I I, I long to come to you that I may humble myself and mourn with you. See, humility... It builds bridges and relationships. If Paul has said, you guys are wicked, vile sinners. You guys are making this. What are you doing sleeping with your dad's wife? You need to be cast out. And you know what? You got to do this. And you guys, you rotten, rich people, you guys have to love those who are less. If he started writing that letter, what do you think that they would have done hearing those words? Uh, Yeah, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, but we're going to be on vacation the week you're in town. The whole church, all of us, we're not going to be around. We're all going to, to Ephesus instead. We're going to go see you know, a, a concert by you know, the prophetess Diana over there and celebrate and, and continue our debauchery. Uh, Paul, we don't want you. But Paul says, hey, I, I want to be humble and I want to mourn with you. When we approach somebody and say these famous words, I'm sorry. When we show up with humility and become poor in spirit and say, I was wrong. Hey, it hurts me that you're going through that. And man, I wish you could, you know, see the beauty that you don't have to live this way. And you know what? I know that you can't do it. I can't do it myself. I'm depending on God's grace. I need him to step in and move upon my life. And I know that this God who meets me in my brokenness, in my issues, that, that, that I don't have it all together, man. I'm a hot mess. Uh, he meets me, that he can also meet you. When we come in humility, that opens doors. Humility makes a difference. It allows us to pray. Yeah, I don't have time, pastor, lies. You got as much time as you want. The reality is that you got something else that you're depending upon, that you think is more important, that you have already not been able to see your dependency and your complete need before God. You think that there's something else that's gonna let you in and open the door, something else that you're residing upon, something else that you're trusting more in, something else that you think is more valuable to you. That's why we're not praying, it's pride. Church, we need to break the spirit of pride. So Jesus says, I want you to be poor in spirit. I'm going to invite the team to come up. At the very outset, the first message that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility, it restores relationships. It reduces stress. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, First Peter 5. Mary, who says, Lord, you have looked upon the humble state of your servant. It removes the stress where she did not have to understand everything and have all the answers and know, but she could contemplate those things in her heart. Stress is there when we are filled with pride. Humility says, I don't have to know every answer, I don't have to know everything. And hey, honestly, I am not the center of the universe. So if I can't make this happen and fulfill and establish this, I know that God who is able, God that is just God who cares more about his church, more about my family, God who is more intricately involved in the life of my child, the one who loves my spouse beyond me more than I could ever love my spouse. I know that I don't have all the answers. If I can just choose the way of humility and say, God, I need you in this moment, in this circumstance, I need you to move upon my family, that we could allow the peace of God that surpasses understanding and step into our hearts. It's beautiful. It, res- it restores relationships. It reduces stress. But this is the most important thing. Humility. Because we are truly poor in spirit. It brings life. We have to realize The words of Ephesians that Paul spoke, that needs to become real beyond, you know, something you can grasp in your hands. It has to be just as real in your hearts. He says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our body and in mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind that is what we deserve the wrath that's what you deserve that's who you are spiritually we weren't alive You weren't alive. None of us were alive. Dead people don't make decisions. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't fulfill anything. We were spiritually like Lazarus in a tomb. That's who we were. There was nothing that we could bring, nothing that we could put on the table, nothing that we could say, here I am, I'm gonna barter this before you, God. There was nothing. We were useless. We were completely debauched. We were wholly given over to sin, sinful to the core, but, but, But God, being rich in mercy, who's rich? God. Not you rich. Not me rich. Not your neighbor rich. But God rich. God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the only hope that we have, church. This is the only hope that any person has. In order to enter the kingdom of God, we have to empty ourselves of everything that we're depending upon. Everything that we say gives us the ticket, opens the door for us, all of it. That's how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. If we don't get this, we're not gonna get the rest of it. Those crowds who... stood there, who sat there, who, who walked with him, who slept under the stars as he is ministering for days. If we don't grab this, everything else won't make sense. My hope is that if we grab this and take it into our hearts, we are not going to be crushed by the weight of all the expectations and words that Jesus is going to lay on every one of us right after these words. My hope is that for you and I, who feel like we're deserving of blessing. Stop and look around. That, that's happening a lot today. There's people all over the place saying, oh, you got to manifest your way in. Fake it till you make it and manifest that what you want. They, they, they take the scriptures that says that there's power in the tongue and they take it to the extreme and they say, we got to manifest this and that. Rhonda Byrne, The Secret. Oh, the universe is waiting for you to say something and bring it to fulfillment. And it's ready to release it. It's a law. It's going to be yours. So you're there saying, God, I want that vacation home, vacation home, vacation home, vacation home, vacation home. It's mine. Universe, come on, give it to me. Some of us, we believe we deserve life. We deserve everything. We deserve, you know, vacations and and boats and homes and and planes and and private jets. We deserve, you know, rich, you know, perfect kids who are always behaved. We deserve, you know, a home that never breaks and a water boiler that will never, never leak. We deserve that. Universe, make it so. Manifest it. We think that we're entitled to heaven. We think that we deserve heaven. That it is ours. That we are due tomorrow. Excuse me, God, you just built all your barns, but you don't even know that this very next day your life will be asked of you. We we think that we are deserved tomorrow and due tomorrow. That God would allow us the reality of this verse to sink in and say it's all God it's all in his hands it's all his it's his plan I am the beggar coming to him asking for bread I am the person who is dependent on him for my very next breath if he does not supply it for me I shall not there's this prayer the kids pray right like Lord I lay me down to sleep I pray dear Lord my soul to keep keep me safe all through the night and wake me in the morning's light. Uh, God, it's all you. Give it to me. Allow me to have that opportunity. I need you, Jesus. I need you. I need to depend upon you. I want you to stand with me. Everything comes from our Lord. He decides what we are granted and if we are granted, he alone decides to embrace us in our filthy rags and give us his blessing. If you've recognized this morning that you've been trying to live on your own righteousness and you're trying to depend on something else, that you haven't come into God, that you're not praying, that you're not, you know, choosing the way of humility, that you've got arrogance and pride within your heart, that there's something in you that, you know what, you just can't go and let go and forgive that neighbor, that brother, that uncle, that cousin. You just do not have it within you. There's pride living within you. My invitation to you this morning is step into the place of your brokenness. If you have not had a broken heart over your sin, then today make that right. If you've allowed things to just kind of flow in your life and keep holding you and binding you and keeping you stuck. And in the moments of your frustration, you're like, I don't want to live this way, but you can't get out of it. But you haven't allowed the weight of your sin to truly break over you and break your heart. Maybe you're just concerned about the consequences of your sin. You're not really concerned about how it grieves the Father's heart. I want to invite you to pray. If you've been comparing yourself to others and thinking, you know what, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not Hitler. So I'm miles apart from him. I'm, I'm awesome. I'm not Mussolini. I'm not Bin Laden. I'm not, you know, Hussein. I'm not that person who blew up that, you know, place in Colorado, the Unabomber. I'm not that person who came in and shut up that school in Tennessee. So I'm a, I'm a good person. If you're leaning on anything else and thinking you're doing pretty good, today you need to see your spiritual bankruptcy. It's all ham, church. We need to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, please give me your mercy a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Maybe this morning is the first time you've recognized your need for the Lord. You've been trying to live your life apart from him and doing it your own way. You're thinking you're a good person, but you know what? You can't do everything perfectly and never will you be able to. You need to find yourself in him because you will always fall short without him. You're gonna fall short even with them. So what makes you think that you can do it without him? come before the Lord today poor in spirit and seek his mercy receive the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord I want every eye to close and every head to just bow in a moment of reverence if that's you today and you need to say Lord I need to make myself right with you I need to come spiritually impoverished aware of my dependency. And where am I lack of self-fulfillment? Knowing that I can't dig myself out of the grave that I have buried myself in. I can't come out of the sins and the habits and the brokenness and the lies and the pains and the sorrows and the traumas and everything that I've gone through. I cannot do this on my own. I need you, Jesus. If that's you, I want you to come to this altar right now. I want you to come. Don't worry about who's on the left, on the right. Don't worry about who's over there thinking that this is, you know, this person is right or wrong or you're terrible. It doesn't matter. This is between you and the Lord. As eyes are closed and people are are, are spending time with God, I want you to come right now. Come, I want to pray with you. We were dead in our trespasses, but he has given us richness of his mercy, allowed us to become the sons and daughters of God. that's you, I want you to come. If you've allowed pride to reign in your heart, if you have not allowed uh, your brokenness to shine before the Lord, I want you to come to these altars. Come to the place where you can die to yourself and say, Lord, I need you. I want you. Father, I pray that as you're ministering in hearts this morning, it's clear to us, Lord, that you do not look at those who are in the Hall of Fame and count them worthy. Although they're worthy, Lord God, for a whole different reason, it's through your mercy. God, you look at the lowly widow who gives the very last of what she has and you call her blessed. You look at the one who is lowly and has nothing that he thinks he can offer, and you call them blessed. You look at the person, God, who has done it in their own strength, and you say, I got something better for you. I want you to be blessed. Lord, I pray whatever right now is standing in the place of your children responding with hearts that is set right, knowing that they are nothing without you, God, that apart from your mercy there is no blessing apart from your mercy there is no coming into the kingdom father convict of sins right now I pray that nobody will leave this place feeling like they can continue in secret sin if humility brings us to a place of prayer. We're either going to be living in the secret place praying or we're going to be living in secret sin. Lord, I pray that you will not allow people to live and be bound under secret sins in their lives that will rob them of the opportunity of your kingdom. I don't need to know what it is. And Lord, I don't know what it is. But I pray you who knows exactly what is there, what is behind closed doors when nobody is watching. I pray today that you would speak right now into that circumstance. That the lie of the enemy that has ingrained and grabbed and held onto that person would be broken today in Jesus' name. God, every single lying, deceiving spirit that says it's okay for me to do this. I can carry on with this habit. It's okay. It's not hurting anybody. Lord, I cancel it right now. And I ask you, Lord, allow them the view of how pitiable, how broken, how lost we are in the midst of our transgressions. And yet you come down as a loving father and you, uh, Lord God, envelop us with your love. And you say, it is my righteousness that makes you whole. And I come in to make you whole, to cleanse you of your sins and to give you strength. Make an altar of wherever you are. Spend your time with the Lord Jesus. Allow him to minister into your heart.